Next Sunday is Pledge Sunday here at Covenant Presbyterian Church, where we will invite all of you to make a financial commitment to the mission and ministry of this church for the building of a 2022 budget. I hope that you received a letter from me in recent days. And I said this in the letter, but I want to say it again to all of us now. This is always an important Sunday at Covenant. Always. Every year. And yet I have never been more aware and I have never been more convinced of the need for the church in the world in which we live than I am right now. As we talk about rebuilding, as we see what's taking place in the world around us, I have never been more convinced of the importance of the church than right now. And it is my hope that next week we will take an enormous step forward in continuing the work that God has called us to do. Now, when I say that next week is an incredibly important time and that 2022 is an incredibly important time for the church, I want you to know that doesn't mean we're in a desperate place. I am so grateful to each of you who contributes because we as a congregation have experienced uh, thriving giving over the last 18 months of the pandemic. We are not in a, a, a desperate place. And we know that there are many churches that have struggled. We know that there are many businesses. We know that there are many organizations, many companies that have struggled with the changes of the last 19 months. I am grateful to you and to, uh, to God that our church has continued to thrive in this time. It has allowed us not to go into a defensive posture to just circle the wagons and try to get through. Rather, we've seen our worship take on a new dynamic as through uh, technology we have more and more people that are able to worship with us and to be a part of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through a hybrid of online and on-campus discipleship, we have crowned creative ways for people to keep growing in their formation, to keep growing in their faith. And we are seeing the fruit of that as more and more and more are continuing to be encouraged to follow Jesus out there in the world, living a life of purpose where they live, where they work, and where you play. We've been able to do great things as a congregation. In the creation of the Love Letter Fund, to forgiving $10 million of medical debt in Central Texas, to having our campus open to, for the homeless to be able to come and to receive services, including COVID-19 vaccines, and in so many other ways, we have remained outwardly focused, believing in our call to impact and love the communities around us. So it's not from a desperate place at all that we come to you, but it is from a place of wanting us to understand the unique and critical nature of the church, given what we are seeing taking place in our nation and in our world today. And the call upon us all to lead in the rebuilding that God has for us. Now, as we've said from the beginning of this series, this is a unique time, but it is not a time that God's people have not experienced before. As we've been reading about in the story of Nehemiah, God's call to rebuild comes in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the disruption, times like now. But the call is not to go backwards. The call is not to recapture the glory days of what used to be. But to believe that this is the moment where change, profound change can happen. And that the kingdom of God can become more real in this world 
than we have ever known before. That is the opportunity before us all. And next week will be a critical time as we continue to seek to be faithful in leading what a rebuild can look like. As before we read our scripture passage, I just want to remind you where we are in the passage, uh, in, in the story of Nehemiah. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw Nehemiah arrive in Jerusalem. He didn't arrive with great bluster and great fanfare, but he arrived discreetly, we said. He spent days just quietly examining the wall that had been breached by the Babylonians, and he came up with ways to not just rebuild, but he understood himself how to rebuild it better. Then last week, we finally saw where Nehemiah makes uh, a speech to talk to the people about what it means to rally together, to rebuild the wall, to follow God's call. We read the first half of the speech last week in one verse. One verse, half a speech. Some of us could learn something from that. (laughs) Today we're going to read the entire speech, which is two verses, which means that Nehemiah is far more efficient with his words than I could ever be. I can't order from a menu. In two biblical verses. But Nehemiah rallies an entire community. And so let us turn our attention now to how Nehemiah speaks to the people and their response. In chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, I invite you to listen to God's word to us today. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them that the hand of my God had been gracious upon me and also the words that the king had spoken to me. Then they said, let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. They committed themselves to the common good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for you to lead us and be with us. And today, no matter who we are or how we walk in here, may we hear your gospel, your good news, and may it change us all forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So five days ago, this past Tuesday, I had the opportunity to make a presentation and to interact with our visions ministry here at Covenant. The topic of the conversation was about the church during and after COVID-19. What's the future for a congregation? What's the future for a church like Covenant? And uh, in that interactive time, which I loved, and for those of you who were there, I I learned a lot. And I'm grateful for the time we had together. Um, But one of the ways we started that time was not to say, what's the future of the church? That's always a mistake when you start with the church. The church has no business just existing itself. The church exists to love and to witness to and to serve the world around us so that others might hear and experience the grace and love of God in Jesus Christ. So what we did is we started with the question of saying, let's look at the culture around us. Let's look at our society. Let's look at taking place or what's taking place and let's describe it. Let's not judge it first. Let's just describe it so that if we describe it and become pretty knowledgeable about it, we can therefore say, so what does it mean to effectively live out God's mission in the unique context in which we find ourselves today? And as I asked them to describe our society, the first answer that I was given is the one that poll after poll after poll after poll 
shows is how Americans most think of our society today. And what the answer they gave is this. We are divided. We are a divided people. We are a divided people in almost every way you can think of. When it comes to our vision for the society of our country and the social fabric of it, when it comes to the economic policies, when it comes to politics and how politics should work, when it comes to whether vaccines work, when it comes to whether masks work, when it comes to just about anything, we are divided. Bitterly divided. Angrily divided. The idea of reading in Nehemiah 18, how that verse ends, sticks out to me, and I hope it did to you, that the people committed themselves to the common good. They committed themselves to the common good. Can you imagine that today? Can you imagine when that was last described in this country? We, have more, we spend more energy fighting about the definition of good than we do believing we have anything in common. They committed themselves to the common good. And it's not enough in the debate. We've always been divided. We've always had different points of view. We've always had debates. That's not different. What's different right now is there's this anger. There's this fear of the other side. There's this idea that I'm not just going to debate you, but I've got to dehumanize your position and tear it down. Or nothing else is good enough. Where did this come from? How did we get to this place? There are a lot of people who are smarter than, than me. Well, there's a lot of people in the world who are smarter than me. There are a lot of people in the world who are smarter than me that have studied this, of how we've gotten here. And one article that came out several months ago that I have been thinking about, and some of you may have read, was by uh, the columnist David Brooks. And David Brooks talks about how this time is indeed different. It's not just like other times. And David Brooks points to something that I want us to think about for a second. What he says is different about this time is that there has been something that sociologists have been warning us about in this country for years, long before most of us were paying attention to it. And that what they've been warning us about is what's called an erosion of social trust. An erosion of social trust. Now, to make certain that we understand what that means, we have a definition that's going to come up here on the screens that defines what this is. This is what David Brooks writes. Social trust is whether the people and institutions in it are trustworthy, whether they keep their promises and work, here's that phrase again, for the common good. David Brooks says that we have to understand that social trust is not something that we, it's so normal for most of us, we don't even see it. And the example he gives of what it is and why it's important, he says, is the example of going to a restaurant, which we can now do again, right? Uh, that, that, even that's a controversial statement, right? <laughs> what he says is, in his example, is he said, when I go to a restaurant, and if you order fish, I trust that the chef is going to cook it at a level that is not going to be undercooked and give me food poisoning. What I don't do is go back to the kitchen and say to the chef, I want to see the degree of the culinary institute that you went to, and then I'm going to watch as you cook it, and then I want to have to see the temperature gauge that goes up in the meat to a certain degree, and then I want to time how long it's there because I know how this should be cooked. I sit and enjoy while the chef is cooking it because I trust that it's not going to be underprepared and give me food poisoning. Likely, the restaurant trusts me not to run out without paying the bill. 
Most restaurants don't have someone guarding the door saying, you can't leave until you prove to me that you've paid the bill. They trust us not to skip out on the bill. Social trust is how we function in a society. And it is critically, critically, critically important for us all. Countries and societies that have high social trust uh, are countries that have less corruption. They are countries where people are happier. They are countries where people are less lonely. They are countries where people have less of a gap between the haves and the have-nots economically. Not because they all have the same policy on economics, but because there's a common sense that I'm not okay with many people living in abject poverty because I have a sense of connection with them. And get this, countries with high social trust are able to unite and mobilize together in a time of crisis. Guess what? We are plummeting down the list in terms of social trust in this country. It's not just that I disagree with you. I don't trust the information you have. I don't trust what's motivating you and what you're saying. I don't trust that you want what's best for me or my family or my country or this world. It's deeper than just a debate. Now, we can have all kinds of conversations, and again, there's a lot written to this as to how we've gotten here. Certainly one of the different the things we have to understand is the dangers of the internet in this, and I am not anti-technology. The internet is a great thing. We have people worshiping with us literally around the world uh, through our live stream, and so the internet is a good and useful and important tool. It's an, it's an essential tool. But there are dangers that contribute to this. For instance, as we've talked about, I can go and listen to whatever news source I want. I can just sit by myself and be fed whatever information lines up with my current worldview. And I can not have the news read to me in a unified way where we're all hearing the same information like it used to be. But if I hear somebody presenting news on a worldview I don't agree with, I just turn the channel. I just go somewhere else to find someone that tells me what I already think about the world. And then I can post about it online and write about people online. Because I don't have to enter into a dialogue with thinking people. I can just blast away at anybody that doesn't see the world the same way I do. And if someone posts on social media with a different worldview as me, I just have to defriend them and silence them because I'm so open-minded that I don't want to hear a viewpoint that's different from what I already think. We've seen the, the roots of this and how it comes about in the fact that we have lived for years in an age of what sociologists call as extreme individualism, and we've paraded it. You can believe what you want. No one can tell you what's real. No one can tell you what's true. No one can tell you what's right. It's all about you. You don't have to listen to experts on anything. Just do what you think's right. There's lots of causes to it. What's important to see is it's not the fault of one person or one group. We all contribute to this. We all do it. I do it. We contribute to this. And what's really important that Brooks writes about is the effects of it. Because it's not going to affect some of us when social trust goes down. It is cataclysmic to a society. It is cataclysmic. We might not be able to agree on what the common good is, but we share a common fate. If you look at the list of nations that rank high in social trust, they are the nations that lead the world. They are the nations that have art. 
They are the nations that set culture. They are the nations that other nations look to for guidance and for leadership. If you look at nations that rank low on social trust, they are the nations you don't want to be born in. They are the nations that you don't want to visit and travel to, and they lead nothing except sowing chaos in this world. And we, for years, have been plummeting down the list. It is a sobering thing when you start to see the effects of this. We're exhausted, right? Aren't you exhausted? I'm exhausted. Recent Gallup poll showed that Americans are at a low, all-time low in terms of happiness and satisfaction. But we are at an almost all-time high in being united, it being angry at the state of things. 71% are angry about the state of the world and the direction in which it's heading. It's the only thing the left and the right can agree on, is no one's happy. No one thinks that their side is winning. Everybody feels like this is kind of falling apart, and everybody is united in outrage about it. Just kind of different things that make us outraged. Brooks's article is actually quite sobering. If you read it, you remember that at the end of it, he says, for decades, he has been writing, trying to convince people that this nation is not in a state of decay. But he ends the entire article actually by saying, I don't know. Actually, I'm starting to wonder if maybe it is. And if we are on a downward trajectory that is very sobering to consider the future of. But in the midst of the article, there was a quote. It's a quote I have been thinking about and thinking about and thinking about. And it is a quote that to me is actually a nugget of hope in the midst of all that's taking place and going on. And it is about how social trust can be rebuilt. I'm going to bring it up here, and I want us to consider it for just a second. Social trust can be rebuilt, but it will happen locally, person to person. It is built in organizations in which people's shared identity is stronger than their diverse outlooks. It's not going to be fixed by Washington, D.C. It's not going to be fixed at a federal level. It is not going to be fixed based on whichever party is in power right now. It is going to be fixed, sociologists tell us, at a local level in what? In organizations where their common identity is more important than their diverse outlooks. And this is why I believe so critically in the church and the rebuilding of our society today. Because if we are healthy, and that is an enormous if, I know. But if we are healthy and operating the right way, we should be leading in that effort of rebuilding the social trust. Not because it's some new initiative, because it's the best parts of what Christian theology say that community is about. Think about it for a second. Why are we, of all organizations, why are we uniquely positioned to witness to something better and to rebuild this fabric that literally is coming apart in front of us? Well, first off, we say because we hold things in common. What do we hold in common for the committing to the common good? Well, the first thing we hold in common is that we're here not because of some purity test that we all agree on. We are here because we declare that God desperately fervently, passionately loves you. And there's nothing you do to earn that love. 
There is nothing that you do that makes you worthy in God's eyes. There is no thing where God's going, well, I love you if you do this. There's no ifs. It's not, it's unconditional. For God so loved the world, John says, that Jesus was sent into the world, not for some people, not for the right people, not for the pure people, for all people. And so what unites us is that there is no purity test to walk in that door. There is nothing that you have to do to qualify to walk in that door. We don't have a common identity because of what we do. We have a common identity because of what God has done. And everyone is a part of that. We are uniquely positioned in a world of purity tests to say, you can come. You can come. And secondly, we should be a place that can debate and discern the common good and focus on that word good, but to do so in a civilized way. The church is uniquely positioned for that. Why is that? Because as we've said before, you and I are confessional people. The only reason we're here, the only reason we worship the God we do is because we need a Savior. We are in need of saying, I have a news flash for you. That means you're not perfect. And neither am I. Ask my wife. I'm not perfect. We are all imperfect. We all are in need of a Savior. And what that means is, is that some things you do, some things you think, some things you believe in, some things you espouse passionately, you're wrong on. And so am I. It's hard to believe, but it's true. And what that means is, is that that doesn't mean we don't have convictions. That doesn't mean we don't have debates. That doesn't mean we don't write things. That doesn't mean we don't stand for things. It doesn't mean that. But it means that when we do those things, there should always be a unique element of humility to me. Because as the Apostle Paul says, you see in a mirror dimly. So we hold our convictions, but hold them with humility. Do you see that? I am convinced of the fact that someday I'm going to get to heaven and the Lord's going to look at me and go, boy, you sure were passionate about that. I'm like, I know. Aren't you happy? He's like, you were wrong. I'm like, what are you talking about? I see in a mirror dimly. Social trust is recreated in local organizations where our common identity is stronger than our diverse outlooks. We are uniquely positioned to lead in exactly what our world and our nation need right now. Covenant Presbyterian Church is far from a perfect place. It is far from a perfect place. I am far from a perfect pastor. But by the grace of God, I actually think we have come upon doing some of this work already of committing ourselves to the common good. Despite our differences, beside our diversity of viewpoints here, that work is already taking place uniquely here. Last week, we had our videographer, Jonathan Kofal, who uh, talked to some people out on the patio about pledging next week and why it is that pledging and giving and extravagant generosity, why covenant is an important part of that for people. Now, to get the conspiracy theories out of the way, these people did not all have pre-planned answers. We did not write them for them. They didn't hear each other give the answers. They, didn't, they weren't programmed in this in any way. But as they talk from their unique perspectives, I want you to listen to see if you can hear common themes that come throughout as to why the work and the ministry and witness of this church is critical to them. 
We visited a lot of churches in the Austin area, but when we visited Covenant, it was something different, and there was a feel to it. And every time we came back, that feel was the same, and it was genuine. Walking on this campus felt like home the first time. We love the community that Covenant is. Well, my wife, Paulette, and I have worshiped at Covenant since the late 1980s. I love that part of Covenant's ministry is being a love letter to the city of Austin. Um, my husband and I both went to UT, so we've been here for a really long time. And I love just knowing that Covenant's pouring back into the city and making a difference right where we live. The work that Covenant does is outside the four walls of this church and outside the, the boundaries of this campus. And you look at the outreach that the church has in the community, and some of it's profound. It's been widely discussed about the medical debt relief, but that, that didn't happen by accident. That's the, that's the will of, of hundreds of members that pushed forward to enable the church to do these kinds of things. And I think that's what's important is that the church reaches out. I just feel really good that we're living out our mission and not just, it's not just a Sunday thing. It's an everyday thing. So whether it's in the community or globally, um, we are impressed with how this church gives back and how we can provide just a little to make a big difference. I think I have observed through over 30 trips to Cuba, a particular way in which God equips members of the body of Christ in different ways for mission outreach. It's really important for us to instill giving back for our children. When I have given as I give, I feel like I've, it's been returned to me tenfold. God continually opens me up to grand adventures with outcomes far greater than I can ever conceive. You have to listen very closely and, and, and be prayerful about it and consider it and then, and then follow it. Because when I've done that, it's mattered. Then it changed the way that I want to live my life on a regular do you hear it? Do you hear it? Do you hear the thread that came through? Diverse people, different outlooks on life, different positions. I'm sure they don't agree on every single issue in the world, but what came up over and over and over again was a sense that we are here committed to the common good. That when we seek to serve the city, it's not some people in this city, but it's to serve the flourishing of the city. When we did medical debt forgiveness, it wasn't to say, if you've done these things, or if you think this way, or if you vote this way, it'll happen. It's to say that we just want to give this for the flourishing of all. And when we talk about the work that we do in Cuba, it's not the work that some Cubans will flourish if they think the right way. It's the idea that all can flourish and know the love of God. It's not in Belize that we do this work. It's that some people qualify and some people are pure enough to do it and others are not. We seek to work for the serving and the building up of the kingdom of God for all. But for a church to be that way, it's not just that we can do it externally, but we have to live it out internally. And that is happening here as well. We are one of the few places that do not mirror the separation of society. We are one that we have people, I have people all the time, it's like, I know I'm not in the majority here. You shouldn't assume that. No matter what your viewpoint is, there is a wide array of viewpoints here. But we don't battle it out on the internet and dehumanize one another when we do it, but in circles and pockets of community, we learn together. 
We learn in the midst of our diversity and we're better off because of it. I've been in a small group. Beth and I have been in the same small group for years. We don't all think the same way. We don't approach life the same way. We are not six carbon copies of each other. And I am better and stronger and more faithful because of the differences that we have. I've said this to you before and it's so important to understand why this matters. One of my favorite quotes about the church came from years ago in University Presbyterian Church in Seattle. Bruce Larson said, every single Christian has to make a choice about the kind of church you want to be a part of. Do you want to be a part of a church where you can grow or do you want to be a part of a church where you're told you're right? Because the two of them are mutually exclusive. He said, I love being told I'm right. I think I'm right almost all the time. But as a father, and as a friend, and as a son, and as a brother, and as a pastor, what I know is I need to grow. Transformation and rebuilding that our society is, is not going to happen with someone out there. It starts with us. And what our world needs are people who do the amazingly radical act in this world at this time to say that you mean more to me than the way you vote. That you mean more to me than the way you think that you mean more to me than the purity tests that separate us one side from the other. And if we can model that, if we can continue to build on that, in 2022, we will shine like stars in the midst of the generation around us. May we commit ourselves to this essential work for the sake of the whole world. And I look forward to next Sunday and to the journey ahead as we continue to encourage one another to follow Jesus wherever we live, work, and play. Amen. Amen. Lord, we ask that you would be with us, lead us, guide us, continue to shape us into the church that you have called us to be. And may we live that out faithfully, not for just for our own sake, but for the sake of the world around us. We lift this prayer up in Jesus' name. Amen.